Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's the core mission of the Atlanta-based Partnership for Southern Equity. From access to health care to economic opportunities, I'll speak with the founder and CEO, Nathaniel Smith. Plus, all those layoffs in the tech industry. What's the impact on our region as a tech hub? But first, the big news so far of the day. Will a special grand jury's report on alleged election tampering by former President Donald Trump become public? Well, just underway and currently underway during this hour is a hearing inside Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney's courtroom. The judge will hear arguments regarding if this final report or this special grand jury looking into this, well, should be made public. Now we're going to go live right now to the courthouse where both WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bali are in attendance for the hearing. Let's bring in Raul. Hey, Rose, how are you? Doing pretty good. Welcome. Listen, let's get our listeners up to speed as to what arguments Judge McBurney at this hour is currently hearing and from whom. So at this very moment, he's actually hearing from attorney Tom Clyde. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom Clyde is representing uh, a large group of uh, media organizations uh, in saying that uh, this report needs to be released and it needs to be released now. Uh, that there's a public interest in releasing the report and that the district attorney has not made the argument of what justifies, you know, keeping this report from the public right now. Well, let's start there, Raul, because we actually have a clip from Tom Klein. But before we play it, we want folks to know that this is a collective of news media outlets who want this report to be made public. They're referred to as media interveners. Uh, For the record, is WABE part of this media collective? It is not. Okay, let's hear from attorney Tom Clyde. We believe the report should be released now and in its entirety. And that approach is consistent with the way the American judicial system operates. In other words, it is not unusual for a district attorney or a prosecuting authority to be generally uncomfortable with having to release information during the progress of a case. That occurs all the time. But the judicial system time and time again has said, when matters are brought to the court system, we are going to be require them to be made public because the faith of the public in the court system is much improved by operating in a public way. And Raul, that is uh, attorney Tom Clyde arguing, telling McBurney, look, this is not only just important for us as you know, news organizations, but to the public. Absolutely. And and that's and that is really just it, it, kind of his first arguments because he just started probably about five minutes mm-hmm. ago. Uh, and, and we're going to hear from Fonnie Willis here here in just a moment. Uh, you know, the, the the discussion point that that you're going to hear from the district attorney's office is, look, we're not trying to block the release of this report. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to block the release of it for now. 
And so th- that that's part of what you're going to hear from Fonnie Folly- Willis here in a moment. All right. Let's uh, let's play that clip from uh, D.A. Willis. In this case, the states understands the media's inquiry and the world's interest. But we have to be mindful of protecting future defendants' rights. And so what the state does not want to see happen, and don't think that there's any way that the court would be able to guarantee, is that if that report was released, there somehow could be arguments made that it impacts the right for later individuals, multiple, to get a fair trial, to have a fair hearing, to be able to be tried in this jurisdiction, the list can go on and on. Well, right, well, let's talk about that list. Now, we heard D.A. Mm-hmm. Willis talk about, look, this is something that's important because if this were to be made public now, that it could impact further p- potential litigation or what have you down the road. What else did the, the, the district attorney's office have to say to Judge McBurney about this? So, you know, it really there, that, that part really there is about what happens with future trials. You know, if this report gets released, what does that mean? for future trials. That's that's where she was working for. And the interesting thing she said later when she was addressing the judges, decisions are imminent. So, you know, and, and as, as was pointed out, so she's had this report, um, you know, since the, in the grand jury wrapped up its work, it is the only copy. That was one of the interesting the, things the judge said. So she's got to make decisions. Uh, as we've pointed out before, the special grand jury was not going to ever indict. They were just putting out a report. Mm-hmm. The decision on, on whether to present this to a regular grand jury, the grand jury that meets in this very building on Tuesdays and Fridays, um, would be by Fonnie Willis. She would have to, or one of her assistant prosecutors, present that. Uh, some of the other arguments they made was this would be a disservice to the witnesses who appeared in secret. By the way, one of the interesting um, Uh, points that we heard there were 75 witnesses that appeared before the special grand jury a number i don't think we'd heard before Mm. so that was one of the you know kind of you know little gems that we heard um some of the other things that that they said was look we're again as i mentioned they're not trying the district attorney's office is arguing is we're not trying to block the release of this report we're just trying to block the release of it now and how do you pick and choose what should and should not be um, put out. And I think in the end, I think they're saying at least wait till indictments are put out. You know, that was kind of the base. If 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 and when indictments are done with this report. And Raul, we should note that uh, Fonnie Willis was sort of also playing to the judges past as a district attorney. She said, look, you know, mm-hmm. you've been in this situation. So I don't know if it if, if it if it had any influence on Judge McBurney. You were there. What do you think? You know, um, I've covered uh, Judge McBurney dating back to the Tex McIver trial and um, trying to read him or his influences, I think generally is, is I don't think that's a, a game I want to play. I think he's he's trying to it's just not it's it's it's, um, you know, like I said, dating back to that trial, you know, as we have pointed out, he oversaw, you know, the uh, challenge to Georgia's uh, six week abortion ban. Mm-hmm. He's obviously overseeing this. He's overseen some, you know, high profile cases. And, and I've learned not to guess uh, or read tea leaves, at least with him. And might we see any decision, a judgment made from the bench on this day? He already, 
he already said not not today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, there, there was an inference of made. Well, what if a decision comes down at twelve fifty nine? And he kind of made clear it's not going to be today. I mean, it, it it may be relatively quick. We've seen him make quick decisions, but not day of. And 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 but you know I, again. Don't read the tea leaves with him. Absolutely. And Raul, before we let you go, so listeners are very clear, this is today's hearing is about whether or not to make the report public. It is not about any other potential charges or indictments. This is solely about the report. This is about um, if this report will be released, how will it be released? Will there be redactions or is it the whole report? When would be the report released? Maybe even how the report is released. Again, the decisions on indictments, on who to indict in relation to, you know, election interference here in the state of Georgia in 2020, those decisions are made by Fonnie Willis Mm -hmm. and they would be presented to the regular Fulton County grand jury that meets here on Tuesdays and Fridays. And Raul, besides the DA's office on that side and also the media interveners on the other side, might we hear or are we going to hear from anyone else today? It is possible. We've not heard anybody else say that we're going to speak. As of this moment, the, the only voices that we've heard from is the district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Um, we heard from uh, Donald Wakeford, mm-hmm. who is uh, one of the special prosecutors who was handling the grand jury, and then Tom Clyde. And then w- when I step back in, we'll see who else we've heard from. All right. Live from the you're you're on the eighth floor now, but you are at Fulton County Courthouse, WABE, one of WABE's outstanding politics reporter, Raul Bali. Raul, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll let you get back inside. If there is anything of significance to report, we'll come back to you. We appreciate it. No problem. And we want to get you up to speed on some other news taking place here in Atlanta. Now, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation says the gun used to injure a state trooper at the planned police training site in South DeKalb County last Wednesday was legally bought by Manuel Turan in September of 2020, as we hear from Shemaine Cruz. The GBI statement on Monday comes after continued claims questioning officials' accounts of the shooting as well as a destructive protest over the weekend that ended with six arrests. Authorities say that during a raid at the proposed site of Atlanta's public safety training facility, the 26-year-old environmental activist shot a trooper and officers fired back. According to the GBI, ballistics matched the projectile that hit the trooper to the gun. While multiple agencies were involved in the task force, GBI says those involved in the shooting that killed Tehran did not, and there is no recording of the incident, only the aftermath. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. And in other news, the latest reports from the Atlanta Federal Reserve shows housing affordability may be improving in the near future, but those mortgage rates are keeping demand down for new home buyers for now. Dominic Perviance is with the Atlanta Fed. So there are a lot of things to consider. Most important is your personal financial situation and how long you're going to be staying in the house. Because even if you see prices soften a little bit this year, long term, hopefully we'll see some improvement um, and should balance itself out. Uh, Pervion says homeowners in the Atlanta market are paying considerably more of their salary, many above 40 percent of their wages in mortgage payments. And the DeKalb County School Board needs to learn how to work together better, according to a new report from the district's accrediting agency, as we hear from Martha Dalton. 
The review focused on board governance, an issue that's plagued DeKalb in the past. In 2012, the district was placed on probation by its accreditor, causing then-Governor Nathan Deal to replace two-thirds of the board. Now the board lacks cohesion, according to its accrediting agency, Cognia. A recent review showed staff members said school board meetings are hard to watch due to the combativeness of some members. The report also says board members don't seem to understand that they represent the entire school district rather than just the region that elected them. The review did credit the district for improving student learning. The board will attend a retreat next month where it will address some of the concerns in the review. It has about a year to show progress. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And finally, Mayor Andre Dickens says a Walmart where thousands of residents in Atlanta's Vine City neighborhood relied on for fresh produce is reopening. The store will be planted at the intersection of Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and Joseph E. Laurie Boulevard. Dickens says that's a nexus of communities who lack accessible and affordable food options. City officials say the Walmart's future at the site was uncertain until Dickens put in a call to get the store to commit to coming back. The Vine City store and, and another on Howe Mill Road in Berkeley Park were closed since mid-December after fires were set inside of those stores. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Utilizing low-dose radiation scans that reveal cancers, cardiac issues, precursors of dementia, and more. Information about early health screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, here's a question for all of you. If you had to assess your quality of life, what would those areas be that you would focus on? Now, of course, here on Closer Look, we've come up with our top five, which are education, health and wellness, housing, transit and mobility, and workforce development. And at the core of all of those metrics is always assessing equity. It's also what's driving the Partnership for Southern Equity. But can we get any closer to fair housing, income, and resources with the effects of the pandemic still lingering and also some systemic issues that have been around for a long, long time? We're going to discuss all this. I'm joined by PSC founder and CEO Nathaniel Smith. He's been on this program before and part of so many forms. I feel like we grew up together. <laughs> hey, Ro. <laughs> hey, Nathaniel. Welcome. <laughs> It's good. It's always good to be with you. And what a way to start the new year. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the invitation and look forward to our conversation. You know, we talk about our top five here on Closer Look. We, we call them our quality of life tentacles that we try to address education, health and wellness, housing, transit and mobility, workforce development. Am I missing anything? Are those pretty those will be at the top of your list when we want to talk about assessing equity and quality of life for folks? Well, I, I think all of those are, are really, really important. And I think that a lot of times when people think of those issues, they think of them in silos. And I think that the real opportunities to advance equity are where those various issues intersect. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would also say that 
one of the other key areas from our perspective is around resilience and sustainability. Mm -hmm. You know, as our climate continues to change and, and as, you know, communities of color in particular continue to get the brunt of the challenges that we face, I think that we're at a watershed moment where we actually have an opportunity to leverage our transition towards the clean energy economy and the work that is happening around decarbonizing our, mm -hmm. our world towards creating ep economic opportunities and, and more equitable opportunities for those who've been, who are being left behind. So well, that, that is one of the things I would add to that list. And before we take a little bit deeper dive into what you all are going to focus on for 2023, for listeners not familiar with the Partnership for Southern Equity, how long have you all been around and what is your mission here? So the Partnership for Southern Equity, we've, we've been around for 11 years. You know, our primary focus is on working to ensure that all people, um, regardless of their zip, zip code, you know, cultural affiliation or race, have an opportunity to, to reach their full potential. And, and while that may seem like, you know, uh, obvious uh, aspiration and goal, unfortunately, there are systems in place, uh, decisions in place, sometimes leaders in place that are minimizing that goal to be fully realized. And so we work with our various partners um, in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, philanthropy, frontline communities, and others to really, you know, weave a tapestry of engagement um, that we hope will help to realize systems change, specifically decision-making policy change uh, in ways that will create opportunities for all people. And so you know, we're a nonprofit organization, of course, and, and, and really, really are working to ensure that, that all people, again, have an opportunity to reach their full potential. So, Nathaniel, how do you all, how do you, being the leader here, uh, assess or measure the work that you all are doing? Can you point to a particular project or initiative that is meeting, you know, the goals of what you all have been set out to do since, what, 11 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the, 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 I guess, most significant accomplishments that we had an opportunity to lead was the expansion of our public transportation system for the first time in 45 years mm -hmm. um, in Clayton County. You know, before then, MARTA had not expanded in, in, in a county in that amount of time. You know, we worked with the private sector, elected officials, and the community to really begin the process of, of organizing around a $13 million referendum that finally expanded. Marta, we know that, you know, new infrastructure is critical to helping to generate and realize economic opportunity for all people. And that, there, you know, that unfortunately our region um, is, is lopsided, unfortunately, as it relates to where the job centers are versus where the affordable housing is. So public transit is a key component of ensuring that mm -hmm. not only people stay connected to opportunities, but we stay connected as a human family. And so that was a significant accomplishment, probably our first big accomplishment. Today, um, we have actually created an initiative called the Justice 40 Accelerator, where we are working um, through uh, pre-development dollars, uh, technical assistance, and also um, helping uh, organizations navigate uh, through the various challenges that they face around procurement, and in particular, specifically around President Biden's Justice 40 executive order. Mm -hmm. um, we've been able now to work with over 100 nonprofits around the country that are led by people of color, 
um, and from that initial cohort of 50 that we assisted in um, positioning for those dollars, they have been able now to uh, accrue over $13 million um, from that initiative. And so, again, working to make sure that organizations on the ground have the resources that they need to realize a more sustainable and just society. And so, you know, that is one of our most recent accomplishments. But again, you know, while those are, are big and important things, or at least on paper, for us, it's about being in a position to accelerate relationships, mm -hmm. right, in ways that will make change happen. You know, we believe as an organization that change truly does move at the speed of trust. And, and if we can't work to ensure that people trust each other and are willing to work each other and see the value in supporting one another, then it's very challenging to move the type of agenda forward that we're trying to move with our partners. So that sounds like part of your vision also is as a connecting organization, but you've also described the partnership for Southern Equity as a disruptor. Yes. So take yes, that a little further for me. What y'all <laughs> disrupting? Process, procedures, yeah. policy? <laughs> yeah, so I think I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think the most important thing that is very important for us to disrupt are are the kind of the usual ways of doing business, you know, in particular in the policy space and then the private sector space. And so one of the great things that we've been doing and had an opportunity to do is work with local governments now to begin the process of developing and advancing um, economic and also equitable inclusion plans in those particular communities. So, for example, we were able to pass um, and work with the city of East Point um, to pass the first um, equity and inclusion strategic plan in the state of Georgia. Well, now they are specifically working on um, policies that will influence industrial redevelopment, equitable economic inclusion, as well as housing and affordability. And as a result of that work, they have just passed um, a policy now, their city manager, to actually create an office of equity and inclusion in mm -hmm. the city of East Point. Um, you know, we're also doing that in other places like DeKalb County. And so working with governments, right, to ensure that policies that will advance equity, whether it be through their comprehensive planning process or through other policies, will be there to stay and not be at the whim of politics is, is something that is very important to us. And then on the flip side of that, we've been working now with close to 30 corporations now in, in the region through an initiative that we have called the Just Business Roundtable, where we're beginning to work with companies on how can we work collectively to advance what we call a corporate racial equity agenda. And, and mm -hmm. again, what does that look like for us? How do we influence the procurement policies of those companies? How do we begin to realize more um, engagement from these companies around decisions that are affecting vulnerable communities and communities of color in our region? And even more important, how do we begin to equip them with the tools as leaders in their respective companies, the, you know, the tools that they need in order to be effective and to make the most persuasive cases possible for corporate racial equity? So, so again, it, it is about disruption, but mm -hmm. it's also about helping people to understand that equity is good for business. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about being good for the people who are being left behind, and it's also good for government. The voice you hear is Nathaniel Smith. He is the founder and CEO of the Partnership for Southern Equity, and we're talking about the organization's 2023 initiatives and priority list. Well, let me ask you this. When you are talking to elected officials and policymakers, uh, how much uh, do you have to convince them that 
this is about the greater good and not that you're coming for a specific or lobbying on behalf of a, another organization. In other words, you know, what kind of work do you have to personally ensure for everyone to, to come on board or at least get in the same room? Well, I think, Rose, one of the advantages is that we are a nonprofit organization. You know, we don't have any, you know, any kind of nefarious goals or, 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 or whether, you know, the work is about us, you know, generating profits for the organization. You know, everything that we do is centered on our mission, and that is advancing racial equity. And so that is a great place to start with our elected officials. And then also, too, as I said before, you know, we, through our engagement with them, help them to understand that by working and really ensuring that policies are in place that would benefit all people, it actually not only helps those communities, but also increases their tax base. It also makes them more attractive to businesses that are now looking for talent. Mm -hmm. You know, it also it makes them more attractive to federal, you know, to the opportunities to, in, in terms of receiving federal dollars from this current administration. So so it's not just about being a good doer, even though a do-gooder, even though I think that, that the work of equity is, should be embedded in a moral imperative. I do think that there are some pragmatic reasons why people should work to advance equity because, I, you know, we believe, you know, you can do good and do well. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of times a culture of scarcity in many ways, and extraction has really embedded itself not only in our local governments but in the private sector. And I think that now it is time for us to not only speak into existence the new world that we want to see, but begin the process of working collectively to advance it with both common and uncommon allies. Let's move a little bit outside of the Atlanta area because you all are going to embark on this 2023 PSC Tri-City Equity Tour. You're going to be in, now some folks say Albany, some folks say Albany, depending on who your folks be, but you're going to be down there. You'll be in Brunswick and Savannah. Uh, take our listeners through what this is about. Yeah, so uh, a few, a couple of years ago, we had an opportunity to partner with um, leaders in Albany, um, Savannah, as well as Brunswick um, to begin the process of developing uh equity plans um, that were supported by the Sapelo Foundation. Mm -hmm. And over two years, we worked on the ground with those various organizations to begin to develop a real strategy um, around advancing equity in their specific communities. And, and we all know that no community is alike. So, you know, we had an opportunity to learn a lot about those communities. We also believe that rural Georgia is, is an important a uh, uh, place that that equity must be realized. Um, you know, many people are are suffering in, in many rural places. You know, and we have to do what we can to ensure that they're connected to the work. Um, but from those reports, there were key strategies and objectives and goals that were realized in those in the, that were written down in those reports. And we want to revisit those places to see how progress has, you know, if any progress has been made. And, and we know progress has been made, but there are also other key things that they want to accomplish. We want to create a space to bring in new partners and, and also continue to support the work that is happening in those three cities, you know, in ways that will hopefully help them all realize the goals that they um, put down in their particular report. So, I mean, it's going to be an awesome tour. We're bringing in some key leaders from other places around the state. Um, to learn about these particular places, but we hope that this will be the first of many um, engagement opportunities that we will have 
with not only elected officials that care about equity in rural Georgia, Mm -hmm. but the people as well as members of the private sector. And you all have so many initiatives also around organizing leaders around racial equity. You just talked about having an organization, having an equity plan for its community or the community that it wants to be. But when it comes to this racial plan and then the surge summit, what particular are are you asking folks to think about? Well, first of all, I think it's very important, you know, whether it's uncomfortable or not to understand that structural racism um, has influenced so many aspects of our lives. You know, whether it be, you know, and when I say structural racism, I am speaking about in hierarchy of values mm-hmm. um, uh, based on the color of someone's skin and how that value, that uh, um, understanding has influenced the way that key decisions have been made in our society. You know, we have to acknowledge that if we want, especially in the South, that, 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 that race and racism um, has continued to play a role in, in allowing all of us to come together and be successful as a human family. And so whether it be our land use decision making, whether it be transportation, whether it be economics, even our climate challenges, racism continues to, to be a key anchor, unfortunately, for the inequities and injustices that communities of color are continuing to face. And so in order for us to move forward as a community, as a human family, we must begin to exercise the demons of structural racism mm-hmm. from our communities. And, and the only way that we, we can do that is through understanding where we are, being honest about where we are, and beginning the process of working together to move forward collectively. And that is really what hopefully the, the Southern Unity for Racial Justice and Equity Summit will help to realize is a place, you know, and it'll be happening in Memphis, a place for people from all over the South to come together and begin the process of, of, of releasing our, our society from the sins of, of structural racism mm-hmm. and systemic oppression and really begin to move forward together um, as, as a human family. And, and I think that if we're able to, to begin the process of running towards our mistakes mm-hmm. versus away from it, I think we'll finally have an opportunity to begin to, to, to co-create a better world uh, for all people. And when we talk about equity, uh, Nathaniel, because I think depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different answer in terms of what it looks like. You know, what, quote unquote, what does equity look like? Now, you were part of the planning the original, uh, for the Beltline, and you, yes. you were very vocal that you thought it would bring more harm to low-income communities and communities of color. And this is through your lens, not asking you to speak for them. Yes. But yes. what lessons do you think should be learned that come from the Beltline and for projects like this in the future in terms of equity? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you asked that question, Rose, because, you know, as you know, I was engaged in the Beltline from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And and, and I still believe that the Beltline has great potential um, to bring in bringing our communities together and creating those opportunities and communities that have been left behind. The, the, the challenge is, you know, with the Beltline and, and most large-scale public um, projects like the Beltline, is that government and the private sector aren't equally yoked as relates to the level of influence that it has in, 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 in how markets affect vulnerable populations. And so when you build something as large um, as a Beltline, something that has utilized so like a whole bunch of public resources, you know, something that 
has kind of created an opportunity for the private sector to see um, how it can accumulate more dollars. Mm -hmm. We cannot expect the goodwill um, of the private sector to protect our most vulnerable populations. I mean, that is why we have government. And so we always have to ensure that public policy, equitable public policies, are in lockstep um, with the market opportunities that are being created as a result of, you know, investments in infrastructure and in transportation um, and, in, and in housing. And so, you know, when, when, when the market is being created with government dollars, because usually government money is are the first dollars in mm-hmm. in disinvested communities, then the people should be positioned to get the, 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 the initial and most return on the investment than, than, than the private sector or the developers that are being involved. So we have to ensure that the people are involved, that they're listened to, that they're heard. You know, we believe at PSC that the people that are closest to the problems are actually closest to the solutions. Mm-hmm. How we position the voices of the community to actually shape public policy, and even more so, how do we create a table where power is shared, right, and that, and that communities are not being exploited um, by these various opportunities for public finance um, and, and opportunities for large-scale development. You know, it is, it is, it is a crime mm-hmm. when we create a situation where our most vulnerable are positioned to subsidize their own displacement. Now, you know, we we, can't, we cannot allow that. You say, and I'm going to let you go in a, in a minute, but you say you still believe the Beltline is a good idea. But listen, full disclosure, I live near the Beltline. I don't live on the Beltline, y'all. Don't send me right. an email. I live near it. <laughs> I can't afford nothing on the Beltline except for a nice sandwich from New Realm, which I like. Uh, but listen, what you all could not, or maybe you could have predicted, was the, the, the swell of just everyone rushing to build on the belt line. You, you couldn't right. predict that. Or maybe y'all could have. So with that being said, you can't turn back now. What concern, What is that one concern that you have, you feel like we can't improve upon with the belt line because it's just there? Is it housing equity? Because let's be really clear, Nathaniel, I have not seen anything affordable to live off the belt line on unless you're a wayward right. cat and you got a nice little comfortable area under a building. There's just nothing affordable. Yeah, I mean, I think that is is my biggest concern is that, you know, where is the housing market and how, you know, is there real work being done? Because it takes capital now to to, to, to buy down the cost uh, of development in order to reach the type of price points that we need for working families to live along the Beltline. I don't know if we'll ever get back there again. And Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the greatest crimes of the previous administrations is that, that they were not thoughtful enough to understand how fast the market would really influence not only the cost of housing, but residential patterns um, as it relates to, you know, who is moving around the Beltline and who is also being pushed out. But I tell you, another challenge, Rose, mm-hmm. is a challenge that we're facing around commercial gentrification. You know, that there, there are many black-owned uh, businesses and other businesses that have tried to connect to the Beltline. And, and I know that the Beltline has tried in, in some ways to, to provide opportunities for black businesses and businesses owned by colors to benefit from the Beltline. But I, I still don't think it, that enough is being done 
to ensure that we can use this opportunity as a way to incubate small black and minority owned businesses, mm-hmm. you know, to create opportunities for them to, to benefit from the, the market changes that are happening. And even more important, if they were in those communities or adjacent communities like Old Fourth Ward and other key communities, that they have the ability to stay. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and because of the, the increased rents, increased land values is it, it, very very difficult for them to stick around and i think i only may know of one right now i'll keep it to myself because it hasn't opened but that's a good question from the partnership for southern equity founder and ceo nathaniel smith as always good conversation thank you rose for all you do And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Pay attention to these numbers. 18,000 jobs cut from Amazon. 12,000 jobs cut from Google's Alphabet company. 10,000 from Microsoft. Salesforce laid off 10% of its workforce. Well, Bloomberg Business News Outlets, they've been keeping tally and is reporting more than 100,000 text-related jobs have been eliminated nationwide. And a top executive of Microsoft says these massive layoffs could potentially hold on last year's. Well, here's a question. How might this impact the so-called Silicon Valley of the South? Talking about Atlanta. Let's talk about it. Joining Closer Look Now is Jerry Kane from the University of Georgia. He's a professor in the C. Herman Mary Virginia Terry Chair in Business Administration at the Terry College of Business at the university. He's also an expert on tech spur transitions in the workplace. Professor, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, these wave of job cuts in the tech field, they actually started last year. Think about Lyft and, and Twitter, of course, and Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Snap, which operates Snapchat. Now it appears this was a, a warning sign that maybe some other folks missed here. We sh- How much should we have been paying attention back in 2022 with all of this? Well, I think it's part of a larger cycle that if you go back to this dawn of the pandemic in 2020, there was such an increase in demand for so many of these services that they ramped up their hiring to try and keep up with this unprecedented demand. It was about 10 years worth of growth in the course of about 18 months. And now it seems like they've they've overhired. Um, And as things go back to quote unquote normal, they need to recalibrate what the economic expectations are. Um, Many of them I think will still end up with headcounts fairly highly above where they were in 2020. So although we see a cutback, um, I I think, you know, uh, 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 news reports of the death of the tech sector are grossly exaggerated that Mm -hmm. I I do think um, it's here for the long term. And I I think Atlanta is going to benefit as well as a part of that. Well, I want to get to that in a moment, but I want to be clear for our listeners that they understand you that you're saying, look, uh, simply this could be that these tech firms just overhired any other underlining uh, reason as to why we're seeing these mass layoffs yeah no i think you know i've seen all sorts of different explanations mm-hmm. um 
higher cost of money with um, higher interest rates, um, you know, various. And, and I think there's no one sort of magic answer. Um, I think, you know, the, the magic answer is we're just recalibrating expectations and what life is going to look like post pandemic. Um, you know, during the pandemic, you know, it was many people were taking bets that we'd never leave the house again, that we'd never go to the gym again, that we'd never go to the movie theater again, that yeah. we'd never need to go out to restaurants again. And that's proving to be um, not true. And so where we end up um, is, is a big question. Um, and certain companies are going to benefit more than others. Um, and so it's it's this this shakeout uh, of who are the winners and who are the, um, not, I don't want to say losers, who are sure. not going to win quite as much. So when we look at the social media companies, that you know, yes. Twitter and, and obviously yep. Meta and, and, and Snapchat, and I don't even know what Snapchat's about anymore. I don't know. But is that any other industry that you see might also be, you know, I guess, and we should be keeping an eye out on? No, I mean, I think anything tech related. So uh, again, you saw a shift to virtual, you saw hiring in those spaces because the demand increased. And now you're seeing those people. And, you know, it, I actually spoke to a friend of mine who works at one of these companies, and he mm -hmm. says, it's really hard to know where the layoffs are taking place because so many people are virtual. Uh, and working virtually. So you don't necessarily see in the office that this group or this person isn't there. So my suspicion is they're doing something fairly strategic. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, getting rid of the the functional areas, getting rid of the um, uh, the, the parts that aren't growing mm -hmm. or, or not living up to expectations um, and, and keeping those that are still profitable. Well, I, I think with Amazon, for example, I mean, word on the curb, is it word on the tech curb was that, look, the department that deals with Alexa and all that, that it just, it never grew. It just never took off the way they wanted to. So that was an area. You just told me that, look, this is great for Atlanta. Uh, explain yourself here. Are you saying that maybe we'll see more professionals want to come to Atlanta? You see Atlanta still being this growing I know I don't call it the Silicon Valley of the South because I don't know if we're there yet. I'll ask you that right. a little bit later. But you say this is good for Atlanta in terms of that workforce. Yeah. So, you know, it, one thing that's happening is that every company is calling itself a tech company these days, whether it's Walmart, whether it's UPS, whether it's Delta. They're all very IT intensive. And now we're seeing. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, what unemployment rate is three and a half percent, which full employment is considered 5%. So we have this, this uh, strong talent uh, need. And when the tech companies who can afford to pay quite a bit more um, than these more traditional companies begin to shed some of that talent, I would think some of the more traditional companies that have strong IT needs in the Atlanta area are just going to be salivating to pick up some of these employees, whether they have the tech skills or whether they're just immersed in this more entrepreneurial experimental culture that uh, defines the tech industry, that they're going to want to snap these people up. And so I think for many of the, the companies in Atlanta, this is good news because mm -hmm. really great employees are coming on the market and they're going to fuel these other businesses. By the way, for the listener, just emailed me. Come on, Rose. You never heard of Snapchat? I didn't say I didn't hear. I know it's Snapchat. I'm not that auntie. I know what Snapchat is. I don't use Snapchat. You see how they do me, right. Professor? You see how they do me? Let me ask you this, because when you look Atlanta, and I've been covering this for a long time, Atlanta has become, yep. quote, transaction alley in terms of the fintech. I mean, this is yep. something that's just exploded. 
I'm imagining fintech, the industry, not experiencing any issues right now in terms of workforce development. They need people. Sure. And a lot of industries need people. And and what's happening is, and it's not just, I mean, yeah, it's great in Atlanta, but a lot of the other um, large metro areas are are also seeing tech increase because you know San Francisco just can't hold it all anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not big enough. The tech entrepreneurship and it's is too so doggone expensive to live out Absolutely. there. I mean, Atlanta's expensive. You're talking about Beltway on your last one. Go try to live in downtown Frank San Francisco. That's a different beast. Um, but but there is so some- we've got these. We've got great um, throughout the country, and these large metro areas are picking this up. And I think this is great. But they're also, listen, in terms of all those, the numbers that I mentioned coming into this segment, folks losing their jobs, that is never, never an experience anyone probably wants to go through. But listen, this also impacts so many international tech workers as well and also can impact folks' visa statuses as well. So how do you see this playing out? Is this something you think that the government's going to have to get involved with if we continue to see some more layoffs? Because I want to be very clear, we have a lot of international workers and employees who are here on certain work visas and, and statuses. And with yep. these layoffs, I mean, that's that's a big impact on them. Yeah. And unfortunately, I am not, you know, a visa expert. Sure. And so all I have to say is I, I have a strong suspicion if Google was interested in hiring some of these employees that Delta and UPS and Home Depot will be too. And so it's just a matter of how do we create the, the mm-hmm. process by which these, and, and I just don't know how that process works. And, and sometimes folks in Washington don't know how that process works. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. Send the professor email. I get it. Let's talk about then where Atlanta is or the Atlanta region is as really being this, this we keep, I've been saying emerging tech hub, but let's be clear, yep. you know, it, it's a major player. Is Atlanta, is it, where is it in terms of catching up with Silicon Valley or even some would say Austin, Texas? I'm not sure. How do you see these three areas? You know, I, I do think uh, San Francisco is a different beast entirely. Um, and, and you've got, another, you know, Seattle is another one. Um, you know, New York certainly has a strong and Austin has been the, the, the latest up and comer. I don't think Atlanta is quite at that level yet. Um, but I do think we are the, an up and comer, and it depends on how we invest, how we continue to educate our uh, students. And we have a great program at University of Georgia, as do um, the other Atlanta um, universities. We have strong tech education feeding into the workplace um, of Atlanta. And the more that we can keep doing that and keeping you know, our bright young people here in the state, continuing to train them to make sure we have the talent we need to sort of keep fueling these companies, I think that's only going to, there's room for lots of players in this space. And just because we're not San Francisco, I'm not sure we want to be San Francisco um, for a number of reasons, doesn't mean that we're an also ran. I think we need to find our own identity in the tech space um, and sort of carve that out. I'm glad you used that word identity because that was my next question. Might this be that the identity for Atlanta being this tech hub, we probably don't want to move too fast because for some folks when they hear tech, and then they've been hearing about all these layoffs and then obviously other issues, which, you know, you and I can't control the recession and things of like yep. that nature. If you're looking into the Professor Kane crystal ball, <laughs> what do you see with these tech layoffs? Is it just a storm we'll have to weather for now? And there will be, as you said earlier, it will, it will reset itself, so to speak. 
Yeah, I just, I don't, you know, keep in mind I'm biased. I'm a professor of information systems. I study technology. Um, I just don't see the trend of technology reversing itself anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I think the AI boom is real. I think fintech boom is real. Um, some of these things uh, take, the timing is always hard to predict. You know, when do these things take off from an economic perspective? But I think there are a lot, you know, the, the electric vehicles and the, and the autonomous vehicles are real. Um, and so what's the right time frame is the question. Um, I, I don't think, I think it would be a mistake to pull back an investment. I think it would be a mistake to pull back an education uh, because I, you know, there may be a short-term blip in the terms of one to three years. And I certainly don't want to um, minimize the personal impact of layoffs and how scary that is for families, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, in my optimism, mm -hmm. my optimism is from a, a citywide perspective and a region-wide perspective, not from an individual perspective, because that can be difficult. But I think from a region-wide, we're very well positioned um, to be moving into the middle to second half of the 21st century. And I would rather say pedal to the metal as opposed to pull back. Well, I'm going to ask you now to put on your career guidance counselor hat. I have a question from a listener says, Rose, okay. can you ask him where a new graduate of computer science should focus on? It seems like experience is a key to getting a job. Uh, you know, I think there is always going to be room for people who understand computers. Yes, because I know uh, I, I do don't. think. Right. And uh, people who can have um, the, those skills and particularly, you know, the, as I have toured Silicon Valley quite a bit, um, a lot of the people that are I mean, yes, you've got the hardcore engineers that do the back end developing and um, such like that. And, and there's always going to be a market for that. I think a bigger market are those people who can merge the technical skills and the mm -hmm. soft skills, whether it's sales, whether it's management, whether it's people skills, whether it's HR, so many of these functions um, are going to be supercharged by technology. And I always say that, uh, it, like in medical, mm -hmm. AI will not replace doctors. Doctors who use AI will replace doctors who don't use AI. Mm -hmm. And so anybody that can get this technical and digital literacy and merge it with some real skills, job skills, I think are only going to have upward trajectories. Well, let's end it here with this question because and now there was a report on NPR this morning about this as it relates to AI and its impact on some of these job cuts. AI friend or foe to the person who works in tech right now? Um. Yeah. Right now, I, I think it's we're still a couple of years out from the great AI revolution. I think it's a little bit overhyped right now, but it's coming. And so prepare yourselves and learn about it. It's it's accessible to the extent that most people what most people need to learn, they can learn. In other words, you don't want a robot teaching your business class. You don't want a robot hosting your favorite NPR afternoon public radio Absolutely. local show. That, that ain't going to happen is what you're saying, Professor. No, but I use AI in my teaching and in my writing, and <laughs> I'm better for it. So uh, I, I'm a much better person having learned to use some of these tools. All right. Jerry Kane from the University of Georgia. He's a professor in the C. Herman and Mary Virginia Terry Chair in Business Administration at the Terry College of Business and also an expert in all of this. Professor, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good insight. Lots of good information. Thanks so much for having me. And if it doesn't work out, you know, you can be a career counselor. I don't know. Absolutely. But I think I'm contractually obligated to say go dogs at the end <laughs> of the segment. So. All right. Take care now. So long.
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Tiffany Griffith, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me a message. You always do. Bros at WABE.org. And of course, we have a podcast, so subscribe to wherever you like. And if you missed any of this too, it's online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Get ready for My Money Mentors, the new WABE-TV financial literacy series hosted by Jacqueline Shadek and Chris Corinthian and produced with support from Delta Community Credit Union. To learn more, visit wabe.org slash mymoneymentors.